everybody. This is Project Herpetoculture Podcast. I'm your host, Roy Arthur Blodgett, joined as always by the very handsome and charismatic Philip Leitz. Very handsome. And <laughs> as usual, I'm going to do our quick housekeeping and then get right into the show and introduce our guest that I'm very excited about. And um, first, I want to give a shout out to Dylan at the Animals at Home Network for hosting our show. Goat. It used to be a great privilege to be part of this network, and we're really grateful for that. And um, I also want to give a shout out to Charlie for editing our audio, keeping us on the rails here, helping us out in that regard. It's really appreciated. And um, I also want to acknowledge our sponsors. So we have um, Redline Shipping for all your reptile shipping needs. Um, Check them out. There's some awesome codes out there that you can find for a discount on your reptile shipping. Um, <laughs> Very nondescript. <laughs> <laughs> they exist. And um, we also have cold-blooded caffeine um, and they're roasters of quality coffees from across the globe um, that also donate a small percentage of each bag of coffee sold to conservation and coffee growing regions that also support amazing herpetofauna from all over the place. Oh yeah. Um, and then lastly, we have custom reptile habitats. They've been with us since day one and they're producing some of the finest, um, vivaria you can buy. So check them out if you're in the market for a PVC reptile enclosure. And, um, yeah, with all of that said, I'm going to pass it over to Phil to introduce our guest and get into the conversation here. Oh, thanks, Roy. Okay, <clears throat> so our guest today is David Ian Howe. David, thank you so much again for coming to chat with us. And um, just to make sure I don't butcher anything, can you? Uh, would you mind elaborating a little bit on your uh, like exact titles? And uh, I know you're an anthropologist, right? But I want to yeah. make sure I don't mess with anything there. Could you talk a little bit about all, all of that for us just for a moment? Yeah. Um, can I ask though, is it herpetology or herpetology? I've actually never. It's, it's a herpetology and then herpeti herpetoculture. Okay. So, that yeah. was okay. Cool. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, well, yeah, um, yeah, David Ian Howe's my name. I got a master's in anthropology and in, um, North America, it's different overseas. Uh, but in North America, you get your degree in anthropology, which includes archaeology and you have biological anthropology, which is like primatology and human evolution, um, also forensics. And then you can do cultural anthropology, which is studying cultures, do like the Margaret Mead thing. And then um, you can do uh, linguistic anthropology, which is studying like human signs and signals. It's different than linguistics, but, um, and then yeah, archeology. span So I, I'm specifically an archeologist, but it's all under the guise of anthropology because you have to learn the fundamentals of all of that to get your degree. Um, and I went to school for uh, hunter-gatherer archaeology, specifically studying with North American hunter-gatherers in the past. Um, and yeah, like within anthropology, you can do any sub-discipline you want, because as long as it applies to humans, you can focus on it. And I've specifically studied humans and dogs, which is ethnocynology. And the reason I ask about herpetology is like you could do ethno-herpetology kind of thing, like studying yeah, animals yeah. and reptiles, yeah, which I don't know anybody that does that, but I do the dog. Well, me, maybe me and Roy in about 20, <laughs> maybe we'll qualify as those those ethno-herpetologists at some point. No. There you go, nailed it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, ethno-kynology, right? So, how, so I'm, what, I guess some of the things I'd like to start with 
is what, what, you know, what were some of the things that like sparked your interest in that and, or, or how did that, if it's something that's been with you for your entire life, um, like how did that mature and how did, how did that like buff out into, you know, doing what you do professionally and, and turning into this whole, like this sort of educational presence online, like, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I could go on and on, but the, Please do. <laughs> um, just always loved for anthropology in general. Before dogs, like I just always loved history. I was glued in science. I was glued to Bill Nye as a kid, and um, you know the crocodile hunter, all that stuff. And I, I was oh, yeah. especially like Bill Nye and stuff. I was like, oh, you can like get a job just talking about science all day, but there's no way to do that. Like there's no school mm. for it. So I just got really into history. And in high school, um, I was like a Rome total war kid like I loved like I could just spit facts about like hoplites in Greece and Alexander the Great and stuff um <laughs> yeah but I, I found out like when I did history I was really interested in uh like the Aztec Mayan and like Spanish like interaction and like I, of course it's like not to say like the conquistadors were cool, but like as a kid, you're like all that kind of stuff. But like now it's like, oh, they weren't. Oh, <laughs> but you're, you're thinking about it. And I was really interested in that culture clash. And you have a a Stone Age culture, Copper Age in a way, meeting with like a gunpowder colonizing European power. And like, that's just fascinating to me. And like, um, I was really into that. And I learned in an anthropology class, like, oh shit, I'm really into the culture and like the technologies. And I ended up going to grad school for hunter-gatherer archaeology. Um, and like, I wouldn't say like I'm an expert in stone tools, but that's like what I'm, I'm trained in. And like stone tools are 3 million years old. It's the first technology. Um, and yeah, like you can tell a lot about people through that. And another technology that I like never really thought of as a technology is dogs. And I loved dogs my whole life. My aunt was a vet. She always had like six to seven dogs that she was fostering. Like she had one dog, but then yeah. there was always a new one in the house every week. And uh, we had one as a kid. But um, I watched, I think it was in college. I had a teacher who was pretty into dogs and he had buried like, what's it called? Not taxidermied, but he had processed his dog that died and it was just the bones. And they put it in the museum at, in Knoxville. Uh, like at a little excavation in the ground with like a trowel and stuff. And it was really cool looking. And I was always fascinated by that. But long story short, I, I watched a history channel show called, uh, was it mankind? The story of all of us. Yeah. And it start. it's Josh Brolin narrates it, which is cool. So it's like Thanos is talking to you the whole time, but it <laughs> starts <Llewellyn>. with like, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I can't remember. Like it, it talks about humans in Africa and then like, for five minutes and then the next five minutes of it it's paleolithic europe and within the first minute of that they talk about dog, like wolves interacting with dogs and it just blew my mind that like the second topic in that show which is a 10 episode series that's like hours long is dogs and uh, like i just uh huh and i had a class and like with the that professor talking about dogs and stuff and just uh one last thing there's a a paleo artist, which like draws stuff about, you know, ancient humans and stuff. Um, and he, Dan, what was his name? Greg Harlan. And everything that he painted, watercolors about the different eras of prehistory in North America. Every painting has a dog in it. 
And it's just um, something you don't think about that they've just always been there. Um, I'll oh, stop talking now. Yeah. Oh yeah, man. Okay. So, yeah, that was great. So th- there's a, there's so many reasons that we wanted to have a conversation with you, right? Some of it is just that Roy and I have a joint interest in dogs. You know, we love our dogs that we each have. We love sort of like the history uh, of, of dogs and, and trying to understand these animals better. Um, there's the, the ways in which we thought, um, and we can get in, this might come up a little bit more later on, but like, you know, you know, in a lot of ways, a common theme for, for this show for us has been, you know, or at least from my perspective is that, you know, reptiles are kind of in this nascent stage of domestication in some way, or like maybe, you know, like, obviously it's not proper. It's not, um, well-defined or anything like that, but it's sort of like, had to start somewhere. Right. 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 You know, and, and, um, so, so there were ways that we thought there might be overlap between the way you think about and understand the history of canine domestication and the, and ways that that might cross over or apply in our thinking and methodology around herpetoculture and keeping reptiles and amphibians in captivity. And I think, again, that's something that we might buff out or probably flesh out a lot later, but then, the more we dug, the more that uh, both of us kind of dug into your um, social media presence and your podcast, we were like, oh, there's all these other ways that we have some uh, interesting crossover. Roy and I both have um, a profound interest in <clears throat> uh, hunter-gatherer history. We both sort of, uh, the two of us have a kind of like a, a pet passion in um, thinking about, you know, or we could sort of both subscribe to the idea that like, if you really want to have a window into why we are the way that we are now, you have to look at the context in which we evolved. And the the vast majority of human history was spent as hunter gatherers. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, and then you just mentioned some other things that I, you know, I, I'm an artist. I was, I, tr- I went to school for illustration and, okay. and like drawing and painting and stuff like that. And so there was a portion of this for me that was wrapped up in learning about art history. And that all starts with the caves of Lascaux and, you know, um, the Venus of Villendorf and all these tiny little trinkets and things that we have from so many damn years ago and, and whatever. And so there was so much about what you do and what you think about that we was like, we've got to fucking talk to this guy. He sounds like such a, (laughs) and, and so, you know, like, I know this isn't like necessarily a fully buffed out question. I just sort of wanted to like throw that out as like a, as like a, like a bedrock for, for part of how I want, I kind of see the the utility of this conversation. Um, mm-hmm. Roy, I, I'm going to throw, I'm going to just say, you should say something. Cause if I, I do it more <laughs> often, cause our Roy uh, David is, is not, uh, he's a wonderful uh, person, but he's an, he's like an internal processor. So if I <laughs> say, Hey, out with it, Roy. Then I'll dominate the conversation because sure, I'm sure. Yeah, I can't get in a word ed- edgewise with this guy, Phil. <laughs> He's just too. He just talks too much. Um, I'm the same look at him. He's, he's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, um, I yeah, I can I can echo a lot of what Phil just offered there um, in terms of just like enthusiasm about this conversation and what you're doing. Um, but I'm curious if you could just kind of flesh out a little bit for us and our listeners um the kind of process of and timeline of domestication of dogs yeah um as you understand it sure sure and i i guess to to 
talk about what you guys are talking about there too. Um, like I view like as an anthropologist, like humans as a zoological being, like a lot of us, especially with like a Judeo-Christian ontology kind of mm-hmm. view humans as separate from everything else, but we're right. just primates that have a lot of sex and like <laughs> eat food. And we like, you know, we get resources to have sex and reproduce. That's like, it's fundamentally what humans do. And yeah. um, in that sense too, we always see like, to answer your question about domestication, like we see it as humans dominate the earth and we pick little things like Pokemon to put them in like our little list and shit like that. But like we're zoological species that are also interacting constantly with our environment and dogs and any other domestic animal are part of that environment. So Mm. dogs specifically, why they're the oldest and why they are the most successful domestic species, I would say is, I mean, there's more dogs than, probably more cows than dogs. I don't know how that works, but just dogs have won the evolutionary game. They don't have to do anything. We feed them like they're, they're chilling. Um, They humans are very social primates. Um, We're the most social primate for sure. We're probably the most social animal. Um, And like, we don't fly, we don't have venom, but our, our evolutionary Darwinian adaptation is culture. And we leave Africa um, and just start settling the world. Uh, and when we get to Eurasia, there's wolves, uh, more of them than there were in Africa. And uh, wolves also, among all the other social carnivores, are, and like carnivorans, I should say, are very social. They have complex social groups. And about like 200,000 years ago, we start slowly leaving Africa, 100,000 years ago for sure. And then by 50,000 years, we're like full on out down to in Australia and stuff. And um, that interaction with wolves has been going on that whole time for sure. But dogs, earliest domestication we know of is about 20,000 years in Siberia. And that is because like in that glaciated environment up there, there's not a lot of stuff. Like it's not as abundant as the tropics. You can't just make huts out of any foliage you see. You can't just forage berries and stuff. It's a harsh environment. It kicks your ass. And you're going to have to compete with wolves. So it's pretty clear, like with our fire and our ability to make tools and like wear the skins of other animals, we're going to do fine. So those wolves have to like learn to adapt to human life and they blend that sociality together and they've naturally selected them. So that's the debate, really. They've naturally selected themselves to exist among Homo sapiens in our environments or we artificially selected them to do that. It's like, that's the mystery of it. I think it's more natural, but um, I hope that answers your question. Sorry, it's one of the tirade, but. Yeah, no, no, that's fantastic. That's really good. I mean, because, because you, you, uh, you have this one, a very, one great video where, where, you know, you sort of start the video off with, you know, where, where does your food come from? Like, think about it for a second. And you, you talk about, right. You talk about, um, like chickens being from, 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 uh, this like bird fowl from Asia. And then, um, you know, tomatoes being, I, I don't even actually can't even remember all the different individual yeah. domesticated food animals and plants that we, you know, that we, you know, in a small list of the vast numbers that we utilize and like conceivably each domesticated creature that we use as a tool kind of has its like varying origins, right? Like some of them, you, you know, as you, you know, you talk about cats having sort of domesticated themselves to eat the the, the mice as a result, you know, that mm-hmm. hang out in our food, in our food stores and stuff. But then some of this other stuff was more like intentionally selected. And with dogs, it's kind of, 
uh, we don't really know. There's it like, right. It's not like a, it's not like a hundred percent clear. Like this is exactly how it happened. There's multiple theories around how it happened. Is that right? Yeah. Like there's a new paper every day that says like, it's 20,000 years old. It's 50,000 years old. And I touched on this in the lecture, like skeletally, it's hard to tell. Cause again, evolution's not Pokemon. It doesn't just turn into Charizard overnight. Like it, or I guess an Arcanine in this case, but it's like, <laughs> It takes a long time. And when do you see that skull as a wolf just turn into a dog? It doesn't just pop. So right. um, it could be very long ago. Um, but I'm t- what was your question again? So sorry. Oh, uh, mine was just m- more about uh, just talking about how there's so many different theories around exactly. Oh, right, right. Right. Yeah. So, and and that's the thing. Like, how do we know when it happened and like, how it happened, but the, uh, and with those papers coming out of saying different like dates and times or how it happened, like we, the bottom line, if you just like pick and choose the patterns of all of those, it's that dogs come from a wolf lineage um, and they are a wolf adapted to life among Homo sapiens. So whether they're modern gray wolves and just like an offshoot of those that got, you know, niched into what they do now, or there is an extinct wolf species that they have a common ancestor doesn't matter to me. It's just there's they're wolves in general, and wolves. Mm. We can get a speciation like you want, but like wolves, coyotes, dogs, dingoes, they're all the same species to me. Like they can all interbreed. They're all the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a that, that's a, always the the whole speciation thing. That's a that's always a hairy topic, right? It's, yeah. Oh yeah. It's been a topic since Darwin. No one's figured it yeah. out. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, uh, right. Totally. totally. Yeah. Um, and and it's it's pretty fascinating because uh it's it's really weird that i think you pointed this out in in your lecture as well which is that um there's not really any examples of anything else that's done quite what we do with with dogs like that long standing i mean sure there's symbiotic relationships of various kinds but i don't think there's anything that looks quite like the relationship that we have with dogs there's nothing else out there right right uh i mean cats closely we could say that Horses, for sure, fundamentally changed human history, um, the way you can ride them and use them for pulling. They originally domesticated them for their milk, which is funny to me, Um, and chickens for cockfighting, which is also funny to me. Then we realized they shit out eggs every day. Like, that's helpful. Uh, (laughs) But, um, yeah, dogs, man, they don't do – like, there's nothing like a dog. And uh, I noticed – I talked with – this like forager guy is really I can't, Dan something, um, some other podcast I did and he hunts bears with his dogs and um, was also a meat eater talking about this too. And like, I don't hunt with dogs, but I mean, that's what they've done for thousands of years and talking with them is fascinating because they're doing what dogs do. And they said that like, you can always see the bear before your dog smells it. But once your dog, like you might not see the bear, well, if the wind blows, your dog can smell it before you even see it or know anything about that. And oh, yeah. that blows my fucking mind sometimes because it's like it's an extra sense. Like we don't have smell anymore. Like we're surely all, older primates did, but um, or other hominids. But you're just adding that extra sense to yourself. And that's just one facet of dogs. Like they, they can hear things like I know my dog will hear, sense a thunderstorm two hours before it happens. And like, oh, yeah. Um, it's pretty cool. Like it's, and horses do that too. They know like when there's a storm coming too, they'll start freaking out, but uh, right. it's just that's, like, we, we've lost that nature to ourselves. Yeah. 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 That's something that 
one of um, our our past guests um, is a, a pretty renowned herpetoculturist named Philippe de Beaujolais, and he speaks about how one of the values of herpetoculture is that it's like you're experiencing another another kind of mind, you know, and you're you're developing yeah. a, a different kind of empathic capacity. Um, and I, I think about that a lot with reptiles and just also the way that they perceive and sense things differently. Like, you know, as an example, you know, snakes, when they're flicking their tongues, they're essentially collecting, um, molecules off of the air that are then being processed in this organ in their brain to identify, um, their surroundings, you know, this, it's just this whole, is it kind other, of like taste or smell or like, what is it? Yeah. It's, it's similar, but it's like it's their primary sense for most species, you know? And so like, if you're, if you encounter a snake and it's flicking its tongue at you, it's trying to identify what you are. And it's probably detecting all kinds of information about you that you might not even know about yourself, you know, mm-hmm. on a, in a chemical basis. Um, That's cool. And similarly, like there's other species of snakes that um, have, you know, um, heat sensing pits on their faces that, um, actually can detect infrared radiation. And that's, um, essentially linked with their visual field. So they can essentially see heat. They can see into the infrared spectrum. And it's so sensitive that like, like with the rattlesnake, for example, if like a mouse was to run by, they could like see the trail of the mouse in the footprints of the heat like the residual heat left behind. Yeah. It's like, I I don't know. Just like experiencing stuff like that, I think is, is just, it's really profound to, to try and like, and I think it's something that like, especially hunters can relate to, I think, because um, to be a successful hunter, I think you have to, you have to try and like place yourself into the experience of what you're hunting and understand it. And yeah. I think there's just so much value in that. It seems like a very deeply ancient human thing to do. Mm-hmm. You also said something there that I, I found really intriguing, like the idea that, you know, we don't really use our noses anymore. We don't smell the way we we may have once used the nose. Yeah, yeah. Like outsource that tech to our dogs in some in some regard. <laughs> yeah, sort of cool. in the same way like we're that. like we're like outsourcing our memory to our smartphones and stuff like that. Cause like, I don't, yeah. I don't remember any cell phone or I mean, uh, phone numbers anymore. You know, I don't know yeah. about you. I, I don't, I don't really remember having any of them memorized anymore, but like, right. you know, we, we've, we've been talked, um, the way we've talked about reptiles and herpetoculture on, on this show has been like, <clears throat> um, like the purpose that they seem to serve for us is one of like a sort of like a mimetic psychological purpose, you know, like we come into the world um, expecting to be surrounded by various kinds of wildlife and various kinds of things. Like, you know, that's why kids, you know, baby, baby humans are so curious about the world around them is because, you know, we're like trying to find out where the fuck we are and like, Mm -hmm. you know, learn to be a part of this environment that we're going to, Conceit. We think we're going to have to utilize everything around us to to be able to survive, and and we don't necessarily have to do that anymore. And so there's this sort of way that, um, or at least hypothetically, anyway, or theoretically, whatever, uh, <clears throat> that bringing reptiles into captivity. One of the reasons it has some value is that psychologically, it you know, it's taking this thing that most of so many of us just don't see anymore. Right. You know, like we don't, 
I'm looking out my window and there's a JC Penny and two other apartment buildings and some roads. And there's like an acai place right over there. But like, there's a few trees. Are you in Loveland? No, I'm in, I'm in, uh, Broom, uh, Broomfield. So like, Oh, okay. I used yeah, to, you know, yeah, that area. Yeah. 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 Cool. So I'm, I'm like up in the Broom, Broomfield area. It's great, but you know, it's, it's nothing like, you know, what we would have popped into several thousand years ago, you know, had, had a much more intimate relationship with the, the, the land and all the animals around. And so in some ways, you know, that's sort of why I was really curious to talk more about some of the various ways different things were domesticated, because I think that, you know, how many things other than, you know, uh, maybe koi or uh, bonsai trees or like certain flowers, like how many things were, have just been domesticated for, because we like them, you know, it's like, "Ah, I just kind of like this. It's like, surely, yeah, some dogs, right. But dogs, no matter which one you're talking about, have some other kind of utility, Right. Which, you know, which is why you talk about them as a, as a tool, as a piece of tech, you know, and I I like in some of your uh, talks and lectures where you talk about them as a, like this robot, this thing that kind of program, this biological robot that you can program to do all these different things. And it's sort of, this is kind of what's something that is really, really interesting to me about, about reptiles. It's, it's like, we, we don't really have herpetoculture as a, as a, like an institution, we don't have any governing bodies that uh, are really unified. Um, we don't have a lobby. We don't, ha- you know, we don't have um, like any kind of well-defined institutional education as to how we do this sort of thing. We got a little bit in zoological education, right. things like mm-hmm. that. But <clears throat> in some ways, this world for for those of us who are interested in this is like wide open. It's just totally wide open as far as like what's this going to do for all of us? Like, what's the utility here behind this? Mm -hmm. And sure, there are some reptiles that have been eaten, right? Like lots of them, chuckwallas, iguanas, Mm -hmm. butterfly agamas out, you know, tortoises. I mean, you name it, there's been plenty of reptiles that have been eaten, but as far as I know, none of them are really, none of them are really domesticated for that purpose. So there's this whole like wide open field of, what are we going to do with this whole thing? Like, how, how, how are we going to move forward and define this, this weird world that us strange nerds kind of identify with? And mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, I kind of was into dinosaurs and Pokemon when I was 10. And so now I have lizards, right. you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's not like a, a, a strict question. It's just sort of something that this is very interesting to me. Right. And I think you guys both kind of touched on this, but like, we are mammals and primates like in that order. And we, we view the world through a, like a human bias for sure, but a mammalian bias. And like, mm-hmm. we have parallax eyes, stereoscopic vision, like for swinging through trees and whatnot and judging distance, which then helps us throw spears and baseballs and things and missiles. Uh, and like, we see things visually for sure. And you're blowing my mind with the snake, like infrared stuff. I knew on some level they, they see that way, but, I think like for sure too, dogs, like we would consider them not a higher life form. I just saw Guardians of the Galaxy last night and they use that word a lot, but um, they, like we identify with them. They live with us. You can see what they're thinking. They, they function the same way as us. They eat the shit. They, you know, need exercise. They socialize, but reptiles for sure to me, and I'm just not around them too often are just very different. And like, mm-hmm. I think it's hard for people to, 
identify with them in ways like that because you don't know what they're thinking. They kind of just seem like bugs sometimes. They just sit there and then move when they see a person just like a bug would. But like they're obviously like friend shape Y pet or whatever that that meme is with the Komodo dragon. Like they look like a dog. Um, <laughs> it's like kind of cool. And yeah, I don't know. It's just like I I can't get inside the mind of a reptile, much less I can like a dog too. But it, it's just interesting to me. And I, I know nothing about it, but people like you guys that are into reptiles and understand them well, like I got mad respect for it because it like I would just love to know more about like how they how they think. Like I guess I mean I'll kind of steer it this way. You got I kind of see like life as like when you leave something in the fridge too long and it grows mold and you throw it out, like life just starts as that on earth. And then it just Mm -hmm. replicates into different things and you get mammals, you get plants, you get fungi. Like what, what, what do reptiles do? Like what's the purpose they serve and like, why are they adapted that way? Oh man. Uh, I'm sure that's loaded, but yeah, yeah, (laughs) it is. I mean, it's a great question though. Right. So, I mean, I think the, the, one of the ways to start answering that question and, and, and I'm sure Roy will have more to say and add to this is it depends on which one, right. Because they exist on every continent except Antarctica and like they're everywhere. And whether it's a snake, a frog, a salamander, a newt, a lizard, a tortoise, a tuatara, a turtle, um, a bird. Sorry. A bird. Oh yeah. Bird, whatever, bro. Birds suck. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I love birds too, but I, I, I grew up pre feathered dinosaurs and I just, there's a part of me that still just wants to throw up when I think of T-Rex with feathers. Right. (laughs) It's super super cool. No, I'm just playing around the idea of a feathered T-Rex that hunts in packs is dope as hell. But I, anyway, tangent, but yeah. Do you guys yeah. see 65? Yes, dude. Yes. No, After 20 years of people being like dinosaurs have feathers, they had 20 years to make that movie with none of them had a feather. I thought that was funny. <laughs> oh, that. It was so unbelievable. Didn't love it. <laughs> oh, no, I did yeah. not either. It was yeah. Adam Driver another heavy good dinosaur breathing. movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Jurassic Park 1 is still just like, see up. Like, yeah, you can't. <laughs> Anyway, sorry, I distracted us, but yeah, I oh. thought that was funny. No, it's okay. It was funny. 65 was terrible, and it's, it'd, be, it'd be hard to repeat Jurassic Park somehow. Um, but uh, but uh, yeah, so it, it depends on on which animal, right? Some of them um, some of them are absolute peak predators, like, you know, you got your Komodo dragons. Some of them are like absolute grazers, like you got your 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 giant tortoises, whether it's Galapagos tortoises, Aldabra tortoises, African spurthi tortoises. Um, actually, the plethora of incredible tortoises across the continent of Africa is just absolutely mind blowing. There's so many of them, and so many different tiny little ones and giant bastards, uh, huge huge ones. Um, <clears throat> like Roy, how would you how would you uh, uh, respond well, to that? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that came to mind for me is like, just as there are, you know, of a wide range of expressions of mammal life, you know, you have this and that the fulfill a wide range of ecological niches, you have the same with reptiles. And I would say it's actually even broader with reptiles, especially if you're including um, the avian reptiles, birds, you know, there's two, um, you know, <laughs> um, then there's the two major lineages of reptiles essentially that remain right now. Um, and like you have snakes and lizards are over here and then you have 
this other lineage over here and it includes crocodilians um okay. chelonians which is turtles and tortoises and then birds so like birds and crocodiles are more closely related than crocodiles and lizards that is cool i didn't know that yeah it's it's really wild i i mean i would have never thought that but then but but then if you look at like a chicken's foot and then a crocodile's foot it's like uh, oh i can kind of see that you know yeah <laughs> or at least for me but um so i think You're of that right, but i dude. think about like the oh sorry it's cut you off oh, but the, i was eating dim sum a few years ago in chinatown <laughs> in new york with a friend and like the chicken feet you eat there like it's reptilian like i didn't oh, think yeah. about that yeah it totally is yeah huh. and you know i think that what's really interesting about reptiles though and really distinct from mammals is well one thing is their like their thermal ecology is really different so you know and because of that their their efficiency is is far greater um so like um i remember encountering a statistic at one point that was something like um like 98% of the energy that we take in calorically as humans um, goes goes toward maintaining homeostasis, essentially maintaining our body temperature. Um, and that leaves, you know, the remaining 2% or whatever for growth, recovery, repair, all of that. With reptiles, you know, on average, because they're ectotherms and they... Um, they rely on warmth from the sun essentially to um, to maintain their body temperature. 93% of the caloric intake that they receive from their food is available for growth, uh, recovery, repair, wild. all of that. that so really cool. they're just in profoundly efficient animals. And like in the case of you could take a rattlesnake, for example, you know, a rattlesnake can easily survive off of one rodent a year, you know, and needs, know its needs for survival. Um, I can't imagine, can't imagine only eating dim sum once a year. That would be a real, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. but then it, then it, then it, you know, then that leads to another greater question, which is like, well, then how do they have enjoyment if they're not able to eat all the time? Yeah. Maybe they just don't have dopamine <laughs> receptors the same way we do or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but with the rattlesnake only being able to, I mean, if it doesn't, ha- it probably could eat more than it needs to, oh, I guess. Oh, but yeah. like, yeah, it definitely would. What do they serve other than like, just are they predators to cull other animals down or like what? Yeah. Yeah. So they would, okay. they would definitely serve. I mean, in terms of ecological function, um, they help to control, um, things like rodent populations. Okay. Um, they also serve a secondary like seed dispersal role. Um, so okay, like, like by consuming, yeah, by consuming rodents that have been consuming grass seed, for ex- for example, then they would excrete that grass seed in their, you know, in their feces and that it actually would, in some cases, I think it actually provides the correct um, scarification that's needed for those seeds to then germinate, that kind of thing. Okay. Um so yeah, when people talk about ecological functions, herbivores too. I mean, you know, the countless yeah. all the herb herbivorous reptiles do this, have that same same thing. Totally, you know, yeah. Seed everywhere. Um, sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to cut you off, Roy. I just yeah. I mean, I just, no. Rattlesnakes. There's, 
What about the Chuck but Wallace? It's the, whole, it's the whole gamut. I mean, like, like in terms of function, you know, it depends on the reptile. And like, they really do serve the full gamut. There's actually, there was just a study that came out, um, I think last week or something about like the first confirmed identification of... Um, of a frog participating a role at, in in a role of pollinating this right. rare species of flower, you know. So there's it's just it's just as broad as in any of the other animal kingdoms, you know, in terms of their ecological functions. Mm. Um, same applies to reptiles. And and <clears throat> sorry, go ahead. No, no, you got it. I was just going to add that, like experientially too, you know, like uh, I, I think one of the things that I've really learned, uh, from, you know, cause I've been doing, I've been keeping reptiles for my entire life. And <clears throat> one of the things that you find is that like experientially, even though so many more of their behaviors and expressions are not intuitive to us, um, the more time you spend around them, <clears throat> the more obvious those expressive behaviors of comfort and discomfort, um, right. you know, like and dislike, want and don't want all of that stuff becomes so obvious the more time you spend around them and the kind of um extremely intricate and subtle communication capacities not just between the reptile and the person the human interacting with them but also in between the rep like each individual reptile themselves like the ones you know whether you're keeping them in groups or things like this the kinds of ways that they interact Again, not obvious to most mm -hmm. of us, but the more you see it, the more you're like, Jesus Christ, they are highly emotive thinking and feeling creatures in a way that I think is not, uh, yeah, just not obvious, right? It, it doesn't yeah. come across to most people, I think. It, it's very akin to me, I think, to learning another language. Mm -hmm. Right, right. It's exactly like that like the way that reptiles communicate with each other. Yeah. And, yeah, and also in the way that we can learn to interpret that, you gotcha. know, I think it's like, okay. you know how like we have shared language with dogs, you know, sure. like we've within this, like, you know, essentially like mutualistic co-evolutionary relationship, essentially we've developed shared language. That's in part of the domestication process has actually amplified that capacity for shared language. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that, I mean, obviously we're not, at that stage with reptiles, but I think that um, it's it's a similar thing where you know all all animals obviously have have the capacity to communicate with each other and with and across species as well. And you know I think that you can learn to interpret um, reptile behavior as a kind of language of its own. You know, and yeah, it's a body language. It's a it's a physical language. You know, body language more than a obviously a verbal one. But that would make sense from not knowing too much about reptiles. I, I, I could see that. Mm -hmm. um, with dogs, too, I, I often kind of explain it this way. Like we, like our language with dogs, like obviously they can understand their name, sit, stay, whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, because um, that sound corresponds to I do this, I get fed. It's not like right. they understand our syntax or whatever. I mean, you guys know that, but. Um, I know he's really good with grammar, actually. <laughs> yeah. Good. Uh, is it German Shepherd? Is it a grammar Nazi? But, <laughs> no, that was really bad. Um, <laughs> the, uh, She's got one third, one third Shiloh Shepherd in there, there, so that would that would explain it. Okay. Well, <laughs> cool. The um, like we, 
we communicate with them through calories. Like it, right? You like the the sit stay and stuff. You can learn like teach that with just positive reinforcement, I guess, like by saying good dog or whatever. But like food's the quickest way to to speak to them. Um, and then you could do the positive reinforcement. Like, I mean, maybe some people do it without food. I don't know how that would work, but, um, yeah. So is there any of that with, with reptiles? Cause they have to eat too. Um, yes. okay. they, they, reptiles can be target and clicker trained for food. That's um, cool. My, uh, uh so I work, <laughs> I've never even watched the movie and I know the reference. <laughs> you didn't miss it out. That's what I that's what I heard. Amazing. Um they so my uh so I work with my primary focus of my work is with a genus of um North African and Middle Eastern herbivorous desert lizard called Euromastix. And they also known as like Dob in the Middle East or spiny tailed lizard, uh, you know, right. being spiny tailed, you know, all kinds of different, uh, you know, weird names for them. Um, but they are uh, highly food motivated. And I have a, a, pr a pretty substantial number of them at, at my shop. And they learn when I walk around. So one of their favorite foods is dandelions. They just love flowers. That's their whole, that's the move for them, you know? <clears throat> and, uh, you know, when the, in the, in, when it's hot here in Colorado, I walk around and I'll pick up, I'll pick hundreds of dandelions and it, cause it's free food season, right? I don't have to buy salad greens for them at the store. I can just <clears throat> pick them wild foods. It's better for them. <clears throat> it's better for my wallet. You know, you name it. And they will come ripping across their enclosures to, to me, animals that would normally flee from me that don't want me to touch them. Some of them, right. will come ripping across the enclosure and just run at the sides and run at me for those flowers. They love, 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 love that stuff. There's uh there's all kinds of, of interesting work being done with all kinds of animals, uh, uh, herpetofauna in particular, that can learn to target and clicker train. Um, you know, I've got some that, you know, we've, I've had a, a pet large lizards, like large iguanas and stuff that learn to love getting stroked under the chin and they just sit there. They'll come and seek you out and just sit there. And while you stroke their chin and they'll just fall asleep, hmm. they just drift away. It's really remarkable. I had one. And when I was in high school, I had a pet iguana who would, she looked, she clawed her way out of the screen enclosure I was keeping her in because I was an ignorant dummy. And she would, she learned that when I came home from school in the afternoon, that I would sit on my bed and make her salad, make her food for the day. So she clawed her way out of the enclosure and would meet me on the bed every day when I got home from school. Cool. And I would sit there and hand feed her while I was making this food, I just hand her little bits and then scratch her chin and stuff. I mean, <clears throat> they're they they are highly emotive and high, highly responsive and, and especially with food yeah the the communicating with mm -hmm. calories is definitely the way to put it <laughs> why do you think then because i never really thought about this like why haven't they been domesticated then like in the sense that we can train it because i guess you can't really train a cat in the same way like you'd see more of it if it was easy yeah it um, is hard. yeah i know they i know people do it you know and and my my fiance claims that she's taught our one cat to sit and I'm not going to get into whether or not I believe it or not. Cause she'll, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, 
You know, I, you know, I, the, the, I guess I don't know, frankly, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure. You know, I, I know that maybe some of it has to do with the fact that they like, they're not necessarily high producing animals, mm. you know? So like you mentioned, you know, we mentioned chickens, right? Chickens produce eggs every day. They'll just lay, you know, you got some that'll lay daily eggs until the day, they day they die or, <clears throat> you know, or like a, like a cow can feed an entire feed a hundred people, you know, mm-hmm. whereas in most of the um, reptiles that people would eat don't necessarily have a big, big bang for the buck. You know, they're not, they don't have a huge yield in terms of food, the things that they produce that we might eat, like, you know, turtles, like a lot of people have eaten the sea turtle and tortoise eggs. Mm-hmm. Right. But <clears throat> they, they, they reproduce once a year and sometimes not even yearly because mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the hallmark hallmarks of those particular animals like those turtles and tortoises is they, they don't breed every single season. They might breed once every three years, once every, every few. So it's, it, it, it's difficult to get the yield out of that, right. In terms of like making them a food animal. Um, you know, they're, <clears throat> I think that they're, pro- you know, if things like chuckwallas, you know, you hear all about all different kinds of Southwest native peoples eating, catching and eating chuckwallas because they're a big beefy, lizard or, or some of the iguanas, uh, on various, uh, you know, like the tinocera that live down in, uh, Southern U S and into Mexico and in Central America, the big, big beefy iguanas, but they yeah. just, there's just not the, there's just not the yield there. But other than that, I, yeah. I don't, I, I mean, I don't know. What do you think about that, Roy? I said to look up a Chuck Wall. <laughs> yeah. Chuck Chuck Wall is really cool. Chuck Wallers are cool, right? Um, look like iguanas, um, but maybe I don't know what I'm they are they are okay. yeah <laughs> yeah um yeah i mean i think that i mean why haven't we domesticated them why haven't they been domesticated i mean i think it's a lot of the things that phil said but it's also it's similar it's like what there's no utility i think to yeah. to domesticating them in the same in, in the way that like you know again dogs can help you hunt or they can carry your supplies, you know, as, as a horse would, you know, um, they're not producing milk, you know, all, there's all those things. I think that what's interesting to me is like, you know, we we're we're constantly um, posing this question of like, why do we do this, this thing? Cause we're clearly um, very passionate about it and pretty obsessed <laughs> with it and, um, and get a lot from it. And, um, you know, there, there are a lot of people that start keeping reptiles and then kind of like, you know, go off the deep end with it and become obsessed and, right. you know, get a room full of reptiles and then it's their life. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'm like, okay, that's like, it's, it's clear that, um, there is a utility to it for, for us. Like we're being met by the process of keeping reptiles in a way that we're not otherwise being met. You know, it's like, it's, it's very rewarding in that way. And, um, and so the way that I've heard that described is like, it's, it serves an ethnozoological function, um, to keep reptiles. And, um, I think that that's, it's, it's interesting to think about it that way. And I think again, like Phil mentioned earlier, you know, like for the vast majority of our, time as a species we lived in much more direct relationship with our environments with other species and i think that there's value to um interspecies interactions um that they provide a kind of feedback 
to us that we don't receive from intraspecies interactions, if that makes sense. Yeah. And like what, like sitting with what's behind you there and like, do you guys follow uh, reptile smiles on Instagram? No. Um, she's a friend of mine. I, I mean, an Instagram friend. I can't remember her first name. Uh, I don't think she wants to give it out. It's that kind of situation, but um, mm-hmm. awesome. Like she runs a pet shop in, uh, I think outside Chicago, but she'd like <laughs> a huge room like you have. And it, to me, it's kind of like a garden. Um, yeah. And like, there's oh, an archaeology yeah. thing. It's Marxist archaeology, but like looking at clocks and, and gardens and like Victorian era stuff, it shows status and like you can control time and nature, all that. But um, I, know this, I know this account. So okay. Yeah. Cool yeah. She does that cool stuff. It looks like she takes good care of them too. But um, and I learn a lot from the page too. But the uh, like, yeah, it just seems like it's like a garden. It's pleasing to look at. Mm-hmm. Reptiles to me are a little more like, in touch not in touch with nature but like they're part of nature like they're like the landscape to me yeah. um, more so than like kind of like birds are more so than like a deer or yeah. like mammals are to me um which move yeah. around a lot more yeah um yeah it's cool um i guess i was piggybacking off what you said but it, it, it is cool to me and like it's kind of that ethnozoological like being in touch with nature kind of thing mm-hmm. and it and it and it's also <clears throat> i think sometimes you know, there's like a, the, 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 um, so I, I'm a, my other weird hat that I wear is I'm a, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructor and, and oh, yeah. coach and competitor and stuff. And one of the things that we learn a lot of, that I talk a lot about with my students is timing, right? Timing is everything in, especially in, in a, in a, in a combat sport, right? Like you can, if I just come out like windmill in my hands everywhere, like eh, I might hit somebody somewhere, but it's not, <clears throat> not really a good way to do it right like if it's going to be better yeah. if, I, if i wait for somebody to swing at me and then hit him with a big overhand right it's going to land right on the jaw timing's perfect everything goes right and i think like there's an element of timing in everything right you know you you in your uh in your lectures you talk about the dogs are the oldest domesticated animal that we have right they're before everything else well why I mean, it's like timing right <clears throat> like for for whatever reason at that time, however it happened, that was the right time and the right circumstances for us to bond with this other weird creature that has the similarities to us <clears throat> that are uh, a little wild. But why wasn't it till X number of thousands of years later before the horse was domesticated? And why not mm-hmm. X number of years sooner for like the chicken or, or, or what have you? And, um, you know, you, you mentioned... Um, I've read about him so many times, but I forget the Russian gentleman who bred the oh, fox. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like, I, I, fuck, I wouldn't have known that you could domesticate weird foxes. I would have had no yeah, clue. Yeah. And it was like, oh, well, this is the right time. He was like, ah, oh, we got to figure this out. Let's breed some weird foxes and see what happens. And turns out in just a few generations, their ears get floppy. They get a little piebaldism and they start to bark and they like to lick. And it's like, what the hell? You know, right. how, how, how it, it's just, it's so freaking weird how and why some of these things happen. And, you know, I think you were talking about plants too. Plants are, are probably the closest, probably the closest uh, corollary to, to, to reptiles and, you know, or, or um, uh, freshwater fish keeping, right? These are some of the closest things to what we do in terms of why and how and all of that, because it's like, <clears throat> they don't have the same, I mean, obviously with plants. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody loves 
corn and, and, and tomatoes and peppers and squash. And I love it. But mm. with that, then we've got like tulips and fancy roses and hibiscus and all these plant orchids, yeah. right? All these plants that it's like, we don't fucking need this. I don't need a goddamn <laughs> ficus in the corner of my house. I don't need it. And yet we have it. And it has this weird, you know, there's a, everybody does them and everybody keeps plants. And I mean, it's a, it's sort of an imperfect example, but. Yeah. No, like dogs to me, I, I talked about this in a, a post like a long time ago. Maybe I'll post it again, but like whether you grew up in like New York City in a tiny apartment or you grew up in, you know, Shanghai or Hong Kong in a tiny apartment somewhere, like people there still have dogs. Um, yeah. And like I lived in Wyoming for years and like I was pretty in touch with nature out there. Like the whole, the whole state is just empty. It's full of nature, but mm-hmm. I got that. But even with my dog um, and like, how do I say this? Like I got all that nature out there. Somebody in Shanghai might not or Hong Kong, but we both have dogs and it's like an artifact of that like ice age past that we have. Um, and like they're remnant there. So we're still in touch with that. Like it's the modern form of that relationship with nature. That's like incarnate in a dog. It sounds like woo woo, mm. but like, it's just, no. it's there. No, like it's... You're, you're petting a wolf every day. And like, yeah, I don't know. I just always find that fascinating. Me, yeah, same. And and um, <clears throat> so something my my fiance my fiance and I have been talking about because you know we're we're looking at trying to have kids here sometime in the next year or two. And um, nice. you know we've got <clears throat> we've got our cats, we've got our dog, we've got our uh, menagerie of crazy reptiles in a warehouse. Um, <laughs> but there's also this other element of like this other element that comes in with the dog in particular, right? Where it's like. This is, you know, what's that hilarious, <clears throat> I don't remember if it's the Spinal Tap or the Simpsons, like, this is a sacred bond, a sacred bond, you know, like everybody says <laughs> it in one whole group. Sounds Simpsons-y. Yeah, 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 right. And it, and it, it feels, there's something about, there's something so different in the way I'm going to be able to convey the relationship that we have with our family dog to my kids is going to be very, very, very different. I'm going to say, hey you know, in whatever vocabulary I have to, at whatever age I start teaching this, them, this particular thing, but I'll be able to go to them and say, Hey, people, humans, us, we've been doing this for more years than you can even fathom for, Mm -hmm. for so many millennia that when you look at that dog's eyes, when I look into Lilu's eyes and both of our brains release oxytocin and we literally love each other, Like we get to have that with this animal that I don't think anybody else, you know, most animals, most other animals don't get this. We don't get this with any other animal. We have this long ongoing bond with dogs that spans just as long as your bond with any other person. Like there should be, there's considerably no real, like when you were reading in that lecture, when you were reading those epitaphs, those Roman epitaphs to dogs, Mm -hmm. I was crying. I was like, yeah, this is, this is so rough. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. And the fact that the name is like Patricus, like that's so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah man. Like they had named him, and it's like, oh, and now is in for- forever into the darkness of night or something. I was like, oh god. Uh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, and it, like, and you, you mourn for dogs more often than people in your life, which I find interesting. Like at um, least your close family, you'll mourn for. I'm an average American, I think three to four, probably average Americans, two dogs, but um, mm. I've had at least three. So probably yeah. have five to six by the time I'm dead. But 
like you only have two parents and like a maybe a few brothers and sisters. Like you, you'll mourn for dogs more, and it's just as devastating too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. It feels like almost like our relationship to dogs at this stage is almost. <coughs> I mean, it sounds kind of grandiose, but it feels like it's part of what makes us human. Like it's I like it's, it's it's like it's part of what makes us unique as a species. Mm. You know, and mm. it's that relationship. Yeah. I really can't comment much more on that because it's just like that. Just kind of says to me, like it's just. Mm-hmm. If you don't like dogs or you never grew up around one, like you're you'll still survive and like you just gotta eat and feed yourself and shit. But like you're missing out on a fundamental aspect of like being human without a dog, I think. Um mm-hmm. maybe you can replace that with family or friends or something, but it's nothing quite like a dog. Yeah. So true. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. So- it's it's remarkable. This is I mean, our so we've had our dog, our little wolf dog for She's about almost 17 months old. We've had her since she was six weeks. Cool. And that's my first dog that's like, you know, that I'm raising. I had like a family dog when I was a little kid. And it's like, it's, it's honestly remarkable to me. Like the feelings that I, I like notice myself experiencing looking at her. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's like, yeah. It's ridiculous. Sure. It's like, like I held my little dog. I got him at six weeks yeah. too. And like a baby yeah. and like, yeah that face and stuff wait till they get to two man it's hell it's like yeah. like toddlers have terrible twos but it's the same with dogs like oh not, I, yeah. I don't like when people compare kids to dogs obviously kids are a lot more complicated but I, yeah. I get why they do it um yeah. but like I guess I should say I don't like it it's just like it's, I find it funny yeah yeah, um, yeah, yeah. but like it's my dog was a shithead when he was two, <laughs> like defiant and he's a German shepherd elk count mix so he's really uh-huh. smart and yeah. like he just knows how to get out of stuff like he's strong he's fast and like it, it's it's fascinating because it comes from this little thing that just eats and poops and like you're trying to teach it not to pee inside to yeah. like a full-fledged just wild animal in your house that yeah. and a, a shepherd and a wolf dog for sure are like it's a different relationship with a pet than i've had with like a beagle and a, a lab like a lab is your oh, quintessential yeah. dog to me it's just goofy yeah. and kind of dumb yeah i love yeah, them totally but my shepherd is like it's an animal like it, it's cool yeah oh yeah yeah yeah. Oh, yeah she's she's definitely not yeah my dad has two beagles and she is not those at all it's a whole other thing dealing with dalva and we love it but she's she's a handful you know yeah i mean the, the one third the one third wolf <laughs> is very forward. One third, <laughs> yeah, yeah, willful one third for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And she's very smart, like, yeah. like scary smart. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been real lucky in my life. My my family, my mom was always always had lots of animals in the house. So we, I've had like I've already had like ten dogs in my life because we've had we always had four. Like we always had four dogs. <laughs> the way it always was it was pretty pretty chaotic but like you know the one that we have now the golden she's just you're right she's not the same you know a golden retriever is like a the biggest dork in the world just like a super dork you know like oh i'll do whatever the hell you want you know they're great still a still a great bond and everything but it's it's highly different than the the bengal cats you know it's like it's just a different thing um so something that i'm this is like a slight maybe a slight deviation i mean um if if you if are there any 
people or any any individuals that that have been of particular importance or inspiration for you in your career, people that stand out that really affected you in, in any sort of profound way. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be one specific person. Maybe it could be ten. I don't know, but just uh, anything like inspiration wise. Uh, like first thing I would come to mind is my professors. Um, like in undergrad, my advisor like took an interest in me and. Um, like encouraged me to go to grad school. Then in grad school, I worked with like, I don't know if you guys went to grad school or not, but like you, it's, it's fun. It's challenging, but it's fun in a way that you're with a group of people that only want to study what you're studying. So like, you're not people in the class aren't like just fucking off. And like, it's like, you know, statistics or math or something where you just don't show up to class. It's some like a group of people and you read a paper and like you all talk about it. Um, some days, like you don't do the homework because it's a lot and stuff. Yeah. But anyway, I loved grad school. And what grad school does is teach you how to critically think in your field. So, like, we learn how to look at archaeological sites many different ways and how to interpret them or like the ethics of some things and, you know, working with indigenous people, working with, you know, decolonizing things like that. And then, like, um, looking at things zoologically versus psychologically, stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, it's cool. Cause you, you go work with professors that do the world the same way as you, like you get to pick where you go. Um, and like, yeah, like I guess Todd Sarvell is one of my professors and, and Robert Kelly, the way they view the world was really cool to me, like as zoological humans being zoological and how you quantify things and how you can interpret, um, like just human society based on stone tools because that's all that's left sometimes mm. and like the amount of information you can get by just counting how many there are what reduction stage that big rock is like at the rocks you're finding you can see like how long they lived there by the deer bones you can see like what season it was or like how long they were there it's, it's all sorts of stuff i'm getting off the rails but the um i'd say my professors for sure and i'm trying to think of I mean, for sure, Bill Nye in the Crocodile Hunter was the same. Steve Irwin. Steve Irwin, yeah. Just like as a kid, like watching that, like it just people that were so passionate about their field. And like, I know there's the whole like nerds used to be nerds and now it's like cool to be a nerd. But like those two dudes, it was like clearly a passion for them. And like I learned a lot from Bill Nye based on his passion for teaching. And Steve Irwin, clearly, like he died doing what he loved to do. Um yeah, just I would say that I can't really think of any other people besides like friends and professors and stuff. But um, no, that's great. Yeah, those two are Neil Tyson too, in, in a sense. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I love oh it. shit, um, Dave Chappelle. My bad. Um, yeah, that's kind of a <laughs> not like it's dicey nowadays. But I don't give a fuck. Like yeah. the <laughs> no, no. In my first anthropology class, like I had watched Chappelle's show as a kid, and like my dad and I like loved watching it. But that that first skit with the blind white supremacist. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. Clayton Bigsby. Clayton Bigsby. Look, no filler, fell, you found him. Um, he, uh, in my first intro to anthropology class, it was like a four field, just intro to all aspects of anthropology. The first day we watched that skit and it ended, like we're all laughing. Most of us had seen it. And yeah. she was quiet for a second. And she was like, why is that funny? And like, we had to like raise our hands and like, like, one kid said like well it's funny because like race is just constructed and like he doesn't realize he's black until they tell him so it's all stupid in general and like that blew my mind because it's like she's like comedians are anthropologists they study human culture and 
rather than produce papers on it, they point out things that are funny and like teach us about mm-hmm. it. And like that really for sure blew my mind into like understanding human culture too. So I would say Dave Chappelle for sure. That's uh, a great that. answer. I love that answer. I'm a huge fan. I'm a ma- comedy is the, the best. Like oh, right me too, man. I love so it. Good. I right did a comedy podcast a couple years ago with Giannis Papas. He's, oh, he's incredible. He's so funny, dude. And like, I do these interviews all the time and I'd listened to him a bunch and like, I'd commented on some stuff and he's like, do you want to come on the show? And like, it's fun talking with you guys because it's science and you're funny too. And like, we can, we can talk, but sitting, because my friends are like, you're funny. Like I'm the funny one of my friends, but sitting with a professional comedian while also trying to answer his questions about dogs was like, one of the hardest things I've ever done. It was like a test. Um, and yeah, I just, I love comedians because they're all smart and like, yeah. Oh yeah. Yanni's like shy of being smart. I think this is the funniest thing. Like he's embarrassed by it, but, uh, yeah. Anyway, like I, it's, comedians are so funny and like yeah, smart. Yeah. And, and talk about, talk about like a, um, like a, like a sort of unique and relatively, not even relatively like highly modern specialized skill set. I mean, Jesus Christ, like that, that is like, I, I can't, I don't know how people can manage to stand up in front of a massive crowd and they just sort of like command the, the winds to make every, you know what I mean? Like I know yeah. it's more scientific than that and everything. There's like a, there's a method and there's practice and it's a skill and it's refined and, and whatever. I, I get that, but it, my God, it's a, it's a remarkable, my fiance and I, we watched this, this other show, Kill Tony, you know, Kill Tony. Oh, I love Kill Tony. Dude, it's, uh, oh my God. Yeah. One of the funniest shows in the world. And, and we watched that and, and just the stark contrast between like the people who come up and, and just do terribly <laughs> and the people who come up yeah. and just do either do even the people who do like, okay, it's a, mm-hmm. it's like a, and then Tim Dillon just rips him to shreds. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Or David yeah. Lewis just. <laughs> right. I, I do open mics a lot. And I, I like, if I lived in New York long enough or LA, I guess Austin now to do it every day, I would. Yeah. Um, but like my professors always told me, like, I was really good at lecturing. Like my one yeah. professor was like, it's clearly your superpower, not studying, but, <laughs> but uh, <yeah>. lectures. <laughs> and um, cause I wasn't the best student, but I picked what I wanted to learn. Um, and uh, because of that, like I, I do open mics and stuff and stand up to work on sometimes like jokes that clearly I definitely can't post on my Instagram that have nothing to do with yeah. it. just bad, um, yeah. like, about different topics, I should say. Um, and like you bomb a lot, especially like if you're going on later in the night and like everyone leaves cause it's like midnight and like there's five people laughing, it's way harder. But when you have a full audience, uh, Robert Kelly is a comedian. Bobby Kelly. Is a yeah, I know Bobby Kelly too. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. He said, like, I think it was Bobby. It might have been Bill Burr. I think it was Bobby Kelly. Said, like, the audience is your instrument. Like, it's the only, mm-hmm. like, art form where, like, you purely have to be on your toes and you you do better and command the art form by based on playing, like, the it's like a conductor with the audience. Um, but they don't know what to play. They don't know what is like coming next. You're joking and stuff. So they have to respond to it and you have to do it well. Whoa. So I like that. Cause if I have a joke or like, I guess to, to, to summarize it, like I, I do that to be better at what I, what I do on Instagram and like teaching and stuff. Cause it helps you learn delivery, helps you learn like 
okay, maybe I won't make that joke about, you know, um, gay people or something, or something like that, like, you know, a respectful one, but like, don't do that. But then I'll make like this one about like, you know, dogs or something like that. And it, it's fun. I'm going on a tangent about comedy now, but it, no, it's, it's fundamentally game. part of anthropology. Yeah. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I feel like, yeah, th- th- see, this is super interesting to me. This is great. I did not know that uh, somehow that had escaped me that you also did stand up. I, I, I heard I don't you post say, it. Yeah. You don't post it. But I heard you say that at the end of w- either one of your lectures or one of your shows. You're like, and I'm also sort of a comic sometimes. And I was, I thought you were just oh. referring to the fact that you're funny. Like you are, you're <laughs> also just funny. You know what I mean? I, I kind of re- say it as that, like it, I, there's other science accounts I know, like of friends that just purely post like, did you know? And it's like science yeah. stuff, but like mine, I think does well. I used to be shy about it, but like now I just can put on my resume. Like I do it comedically, which makes it stand out. Yeah. Um, and like, I'm confident saying that, but to say I'm a stand up comedian, like I wouldn't exactly like be as confident with that, but I do do it. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I feel like doing it is maybe the single qualifier, right? Like, <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's yeah. great. That's so cool. And and I mean, I feel like it's so related because, you know, all of this stuff has some sort of weird cultural purpose, right? right. It, it's, 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 that's badass, man. I didn't realize you were, this is such a, such a cool thing to find out about a person. It also, right. why your, your lectures are, are so concise too. You're very, you're, your timing is good and uh, you, you, you don't, there's not a lot of bullshit. You don't beat around the bush. You right. Know? That dog lecture too, like it's edited for sure. That's the beauty of doing your own stuff. But um, like I cut out all the ums. I cut out things that I fumbled with. There were several jokes in there that just didn't fall, like land well. It's funny. I've given that lecture like five to six times publicly, a few times on Zoom and stuff. And um, you can refine it like a routine, like a comedian and like know Mm -hmm. what works and stuff. And I imagine that's what Neil Tyson does because he, all he does is do podcasts and knows what gets reactions and stuff and says stuff in his like borderline autistic way. And yeah. <laughs> like, um, he like, how do I say it? Like, yeah, you, you learn what's funny and like, you can teach better by knowing what's funny. And I immediately know, like I got tattoos, I have gauges and stuff like people, one that, hell yeah. yeah. It, it endears you immediately. Like I find <laughs> just cursing immediately helps like teach better. Cause people are like, I can, can, this guy's real. He's not like some pretentious ivory tower dude. And then like, just the way I talk sometimes like lecturing, I just, I, I'm from Long Island. Like I don't turn it off. You just curse. And like, yeah, um, hell yeah. it like just makes, it's not, it makes it less challenging to the public speak. Just talk the way you talk. And like mm-hmm. in school, obviously you have to be, like presentable and not cursing from a bunch of people, but like I don't give a shit. Like let's do yeah. it. That's why I do what I do now. Um, anyway, you you said <clears throat> you said something interesting there uh, in the where you were talking about how whether you don't remember which I don't remember. I think you said it was Bobby Kelly, right? Where he said that the audience is your instrument, right? And I'm gonna I'm gonna loop this back to sure duology. Uh, so just bear with me here. Um, <clears throat> Uh, but also I have to make an obligatory jujitsu reference because um, one of the things about jujitsu and submission grappling is Roy, shut up. Everybody, everybody take a shot. Yeah. God damn it. Oh, is yeah, it one of those? Yeah, it's <laughs> one of those. I do it every time. But uh, the, one of the sort of like defining features of submission grappling in jujitsu is that you, your opponent is like wearing your weapon. Right. Like mm. if you're, if you're competing with the gi, 
<clears throat> that that thing is the, what I'm going to use to submit or choke somebody or hurt them, right? Gotcha. Yeah. It's, if it's if it's no gi submission grappling, I'm using your own body. I'm just going to use your body. I'm using your body as the weapon to bend and break it in weird ways that you wouldn't want it to bend or break, right? And uh, I think <clears throat> the other thing I've said a lot on this show, and this is where it's going to come back to zoological stuff, is like in, there's a resemblance between herpetoculture and uh and art it's like an art it's like a craft is it it's an artistic process kind of like gardening yeah yeah it's like yeah exactly like gardening right and um you know in the same i'm sure the same same thing could be said about uh about dogs in in a lot of ways right like they when you remove the sort of other utility purpose that they've had historically whether it was for hunting or whatever whatever it may have been <clears throat> now everything we do about them is aesthetics. It's, it's like, you know, when you watch any of those AKC dog shows, it's all about the, the look and, you know, yeah. how, and how they presented it, how they walk when they walk down the, the, the showmanship the, of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's showy. Right. And <clears throat> in some ways, I think that that's what's going on a lot with herpetoculture too, which is like, you, 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 you want to have an impact and an interaction and an inter in, 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 an exchange with living creatures. Like you want that. And, and there's, there's like no other way other than, I don't know, having kids in which you can like implement yourself and your, your, your choices and the way you view the world and the, your likes and your dislikes into living creatures in a way, <clears throat> there's no other way to do it. You know? Um, so I feel like it's it's kind of it's interesting. I don't know. It just felt to me that felt like a common theme. I don't know why. It just seemed <clears throat> like a part of it. What the art form of it? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And I'm working on a video on this too. But like art is like I mean dogs for sure if make you human. I think, but like art is definitely like what makes you human for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like your ability to express yourself and like what's in your mind and like there's a lot of like our our evolutionary adaptation is our mind and our culture and our ability to think. But obviously that comes with like like Thanos said to Tony Stark, like cursed with knowledge or whatever that like we have depression, we have anxiety, we like all life is suffering. Some days you have existential crises like because we have our brains, Um, but art like helps you get that like van gogh like he helps you mm-hmm. i had like a i was on edibles in new york <laughs> in new york a few years ago and like, uh had this like i've heard this story before but the edibles is another layer that really just takes it to another notch <laughs> yeah i, I might have told us on another podcast yeah but like the uh i was sitting there because it, it was new york this is 2015 so it wasn't decriminalized there yet or whatever so mm-hmm. like they were checking our bags and i had just come back from Colorado. So I had a bunch and uh, they were checking the bags for bombs, but not weed. I'm sure they didn't care, but it was a chocolate bar. And my friend and I were just like, all right, fuck it down the hatch. And like went in <laughs> and had like, I'm bad. In, I don't know if you guys are cool. we talking about this, but like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm, of course. Cool. Yeah. I'm bad in public like around a few people. I usually do it by myself or with a partner. Um, then like a close friend, but like I was on a lot in New York city and just like, yeah. and um the Van Gogh painting that was there was like he had someone it's like very brown and dark is wearing a straw hat and it just looks sad and I sat there and like 
looked at it and was like standing there. My friend looked at the whole floor of the museum already. He came back. He's like, are you ready? And like, no, hang on. <laughs> I was like <laughs> staring at it. And this Chinese tour group came up and like they're speaking in Mandarin. And I was like shaking my head as they were still talking about it. Like I was looking at the thing. But I found out later, like, I mean, I knew he had depression. And he ended up killing himself. But like the reaction I got from that was like, it was just, huh? Uh, oh. there's there's just some there's there's actually some theory that he was actually murdered really oh yeah well, either way i think he maybe still he had killed himself alex jones but he was definitely him. very depressed okay well let's let's go with that for sure <laughs> but um i'll have to look into the murder thing that's cool um but yeah like that he was painting what was going on in his head and like i struggle with that stuff sometimes too so it's just like mm sitting there i was like oh that's why i get i thought about it later and like that's when i was like i get art now because it's like you have this stuff going on in your huge complex lizard primate and like now human brain and like you have to express that to people and we can't always do that through words or you know reptilian like displays and things but like yeah it's fun like you mentioned chauvet and stuff and let's go like that's just like about fifty thousand years ago humans just like something clicks in their head and they have the ability to start painting and like doing all that stuff. And whether that means like you could now have mental images in your head um, or like before that we didn't, I'm not sure, but like you wanted to paint them onto the wall or something, but yeah, that's a controlling the environment around you is like art, I guess. I guess. Yeah. 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 So I, I think even monkeys probably have images in their heads, you know, like there's a, I don't remember if it was Robert Sapolsky or Christopher Ryan, some guy, some dude who I was listening to who was telling the story of being out in the field and watching like a like a low ranking baboon, male baboon, watched a female baboon who was like an estrus and was like really clearly visually an estrus. And he he couldn't mate with her because he's not the ranking dominant male. Yeah, I feel that. Yeah, I feel, yeah, right? We've all been there. We have all been there. And (laughs) he talked about this. This is going to get a little lewd for the show. I don't give a shit, but it's one of those things. The the baboon apparently went like either like around the rock pile or around the tree. Oh, oh no! no. no it's not me. Phil. Okay, I thought that was me. Yeah, no, I think it's Phil. Oh boy, did I freeze? We lost you for a sec, Phil. Are you back? Oh, I'm back. We good? Yeah, yeah. Now we're good. Okay, baboon. so we heard in a rock pile. Yeah, yeah baboon so like, rock pile. Yeah, this this baboon that had just watched this female in estrus walk by, like went around the rock pile and masturbated. And it's like that did that that that, that baboon. Bad. What do you think? You don't think that baboon didn't have an image in his head? Come on, man. He had to. Mm. We're going to have to parental advisory on this episode, right? <laughs> yeah, um, now I have to now I have to do a content warning. That's fine. <laughs> well, that is there interesting. I mean, I guess you could argue it's just the urge. Um, but yeah, that is cool. Oh, but we're losing you again. Uh-oh. You know, uh, you know the, the 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 there's also <laughs> sorry, gentlemen. Are you fine? You're here now. 
Now you're here. Yeah, all of a sudden. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not 100% sure what's going on. I don't know why my internet connection looks fine. Yeesh. Well, it happens. Anyway, yeah. you're there. About monkeys wanking it, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, but there, there's, there's also something about, you know, we were talking about uh, in one of your talks, you were talking, I think it was in the lecture where you mentioned there was a point in history where all of it, you know, you had people who were basket weavers, people who were making tools, whatever. You probably had people who were breeding dogs for specific mm. purposes, right? And there are times when I wonder in the same way that practicing martial arts today and combat sports today doesn't necessarily serve any kind of warfare purpose anymore, but it connects me to the past of, you know, connects me to human history, connects me to this aspect of life that, you know, it's, it's not really applicable to me anymore. There's parts of me that wonder if like herpetoculture and the desire to keep reptiles and propagate them and, and interact with them and learn about them sort of like a like a oh god damn it here we go again um, jesus christ i'm the worst man <laughs> no no it's fine it's like completely out of your control yeah i i don't uh, know maybe there's like a holdover like if something about keeping these reptiles in captivity is like related to the genes that make you want to keep and breed dogs because clearly they're going to be in there now at this point mm-hmm. that we've done it for so long yeah there's some kind of farmer gene, some kind of fisherman gene, some cultivator, yeah, cultivator gene, yeah, something in there. I don't know. It, it purely speculative, but <laughs> sure. Um, like there's come like obviously evidence of like trade networks with stone tools and different kinds of like commodities and whatnot. I mean, mostly with stones, that's what you can see. Like there's obsidian mm-hmm. points in Ohio. And the nearest volcano that it came from was Yellowstone. So, like, they were trading pretty far. Um, but you can trace dog trading, too, through genetics. Um, and obviously, like, um, it's called bride trading. And that's probably a better word for it now. But when you're a small hunter-gatherer band, you only have so many people until you're mm-hmm. inbreeding. So you have to trade. Um mm-hmm. Hopefully that was usually through like peaceful trade. And I, I think people largely in the past were pretty peaceful because you need to know what mushrooms are over there that aren't going to poison you and whatnot. Like if you kill them, you're not going to know that. Yeah, um, right. But trade goods with stone and dogs, like I'm sure somebody picked up. And I, I actually talked about this in a podcast, I think once, like a kid probably picked up a li- like a lizard um, and like held onto it because they're cool and they're hard to catch. And like, you had a red lizard and you brought it with and you traded it for some like different kinds of seeds or something like that. Like surely that happened. You can't really trace that genetically, I guess, but, um, well, I guess you could, if there's like an expansion of humans into a certain area and a certain reptile. Mm. Oh yeah. um, Yeah. I think that's also, that's like one of the things that also makes me think about how, um, there's, there's, I feel like there's a connection between hunting and, and doing things like catching lizards, um, you know, like, like it's like, it's like the child's, um, way of starting to develop that skill set. I feel on some yeah. level, like there's a way in which it's like, it requires a kind of obsessive, like focus and determination and persistence to do it. Um, and like an awareness of like the, the, um, the quarry's behavior 
um, um, at some point, yeah. you know, like I remember being like a little kid and like, like, I know that this alligator lizard lives in this, um, you know, wood pile or whatever. And I know that at this time of day is when it comes out. And so like, that's when I have to come back to try and catch it, you know, like having that kind of knowledge, um, you know, going into the bank um, of my mind and like that, that totally, I feel like is stuff that applies to hunting as well. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's like, um, sorry, someone's walking outside my door. It's why I was making that face, but, um, yeah. back up the, like looking for lizards in, in the landscape too, is like, it's kind of hunting and gathering at the same time. Cause you have to look totally. for like, like uh, with the, the parallax eyes and stereoscopic vision, like you use that to look for berries and certain nuts and stuff in trees and like most edible and like good tasting things are red. Um, mm. that's why a lot of, uh, like mobile apps like McDonald's or Wendy's and stuff, they're always red because it attracts mm. you for, for hunger. Um, yeah. but like you're, you're evolutionary wired to look for stuff like that. So a lizard too, being part of like the landscape in a sense, like you have to scan and look for it. I mean, I don't, I don't know, maybe you can look for droppings and things like that. Or I'm sure you yeah. can find skins. Mm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's like a, I hadn't thought about that. There's pretty, actually like, um encompassing thing. Yeah, there's actually a there's a theory of of human evolution called the snake detection theory. Have you encountered that? Um, I that sounds familiar, but I imagine it's like that's why we're scared of snakes or something. Or like it's part like, of it, yeah, yeah. That's part of why we're scared of snakes. But it's also it has a lot to do with um, it's 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 a theory suggesting that part of the reason why we have the visual acuity that we do and the pattern recognition that we do is is for detection of snakes. Um, there's a, an awesome um, researcher, Dr. Lynn Isbell out of UC Davis that's um, okay. published some papers on it. And I think that you would totally dig that that stuff. It's really interesting. And she also wrote an awesome book. Um, I'll, well, I'll put it in the chat for you. Um, Dr. Oh, Lynn Isbell. Yeah, I'll put it in the chat for you. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> excuse me. Man, I keep... <clears throat> I have like, I keep like kind of coughing a little bit. I have a, I had RSV back in October. Oh, wow. And it totally messed my lungs up too. <clears throat> and uh, even it took me a long time to recover. Like there were several episodes of the show where I was like having to mute my mic a bunch because yeah. I kept hacking. And it every once in a while, <clears throat> it'll just flare up. I don't know. Maybe it was the Rona or something like that. I'm not sure. Uh, but yeah. Sorry uh, to hear it. Yeah, it's well. I just hope you guys don't mind if I occasionally am like clearing my throat or whatever. I'm sure it sounds gross. You're fine. Um, so another thing, this is again speaking of totally random and tangential. I heard on one of your podcasts you say that you think that the Sphinx head used to be an Anubis. Is that yeah? I, talk about that. That's kind of like my Hancocky <laughs> and like out there theory, but like I. It just makes sense. Like Anubis is like really old and like the worship of jackals is pretty old in, in Northern Africa. Mm. So it would make sense proportionally. Um, it'd be hard to keep that head supported, but that also supports the idea why the face is broken off. Um, right. So uh, that would make sense to me because it doesn't look right with the head it has now. It's tiny. Um, yeah. And I think there is evidence that it's like newer or whatever. So mm. um yeah, I, I think that's kind of cool to think about. It'd be way cooler looking. <clears throat> yeah, for sure. 
big ass Anubis, long snout, sitting there looking like a bad ass. Yeah. Man, <laughs> so you're going robotic so again. Cool. I just uh oh god. <laughs> it, was a, it was a cool <laughs> position. Right, well, it was just like you were really. It was like this a sound effect there added really emphasized it. <laughs> back. Emphasized the enthusiasm for Anubis Sphinx. I mean, you know, it's a very it's a rad idea. Um it is really cool. Yeah. So so uh I wanna be so we're coming up, we're creeping up here on two hours. And I want yeah. okay, well, I just want to make sure I'm respectful of your time and and, and Roy's and, and and in general. Um but I have I'm about to play Zelda after this, so you got you got time. <laughs> Sick. What, awesome. what is it? Uh, Tears of the Heavens or something? Tears of uh, the Tears of the Kingdom, dude. I, I've been uh, a Zelda fan my whole life because of the archaeology in it. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's yes. cool. And like this one's all about like archaeology. So it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah my uh, my fiance is a super gamer also, and she's all, she's like, oh, there's this new Zelda. God damn it! Right. God new damn. Zelda. Yeah. I, all right, so to circle, okay, so this is this is going to be a bit of a of a of a backstep, <clears throat> but um, I read uh, a, a book by John Bradshaw called Dog Sense, and that was one of the first books that I had ever read where I was introduced to the idea that like the alpha dog was like a like a human construct, and yeah. sort of like it's something that it really only applied to to captive wolves, right? If I'm not mistaken. And if there, along with that, are there other like misconceptions about, about dogs, about our history with dogs that like irk you or that you would be like to be like, Hey, I'm just going to knock on the door here. Everybody, that's some horse shit. Stop saying that. Yeah. Uh, I have a lot to say about kind of stuff like that, but um, mm-hmm. every other animal has like some kind of like this dominance hierarchies for sure. And that's how you domesticate things like. It's usually a lead horse is a lead bull for sure, like a lead bear um, or the dominant one in that area. Um, mm-hmm. But with wolves, for sure, it's a constant. Uh, my point of this is like, I could see the argument for there always being an alpha, but I could also see it not being. And it seems to point more towards there not being. So I, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a such a complex social structure that it constantly changes. And it's really just based off of seniority. From what I've understood, I've never interacted with wolves, so take it with a grain of salt. But um, yeah, that's a misconception I see all the time. And then that leads into training. And I'm sure there's toxic people in your guys' like culture or your your circles. But dude, dog trainers are some of the worst people on earth, uh, like on social mm-hmm. media for sure. And like for people that preach positive reinforcement all the time, like they can be vicious and like they'll hunt you down. Oh, yeah. And like there's some lady, Brianna Medea, she's like has to like get restraining orders from people because it's the whole thing with her dog. Um, she accidentally ran it over. Uh, like whole thing. It seemed to be a total Ooh. accident. Um, and she had all her followers like pay, like, you know, can you help me pay for the dog? And then like people found out that she actually ran the dog over. It wasn't an accident, but she didn't do it on purpose. So you pay all these people back, but like, you can say like that was a shitty thing to do or not, but to sit there and harass and like tell her like that, you know, wish she's dead and all sorts of stuff like that. Like yeah, it, it goes in. That's like one aspect. And I'll post something about dogs and I'll get someone in my DMS. That's like, you know, for an academic like me, I really wish you would like not talk about this. Or I wouldn't 
you shouldn't use prong mm-hmm. colors and like it's just vicious um mm-hmm. and i i train my dog and i've put a lot of money into it and like i do a lot of hard work with him too and he's a high energy dog he's supposed to breed like hunt moose that's like what his thing is but mm-hmm. i have him in suburbs and he lives in my bus with me um and i drive around to different places and it's hard to take care of that and like when a dog is bred to hunt moose and I watched his mom hunt elk and stuff, like, wow, there's a lot of, uh, I should say I've, I've seen his mom who hunted elk. Um, but I, I've saw her like interact with like her owner and stuff. Um, you can't exactly like train that dog to be the perfect suburban, like dog. Mm-hmm. If you have the money and resources to all day, sure. But like, I can't take that out of my dog. And if you buy a dog, I didn't buy him for hunting, but I just liked the mm-hmm. breed and, there was a litter in town, so I got him. Um, that's a whole other thing, too. Like, people will find out that I didn't adopt him from a shelter and, like, unfollow me. And it's like, how dare you, you want yeah. me to leave him there? Like, should he this just die? We talk like, about a lot, too. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. yeah, we can get into that. But, um, yeah, it, it's so, like, vicious or whatever. And I can't, like, I'll get people that say, like, well, if he chases bikes or, like, he's he's bitten somebody before like that's on you like it's the trainer it's not the dog and i'm like well no like he's supposed to hunt moose like he has that instinct Mm -hmm. in him he's not supposed to like sniff around like a bloodhound he sniffs but like he's not supposed to be docile like a lab or like a pomeranian um and like it's not always on the trainer and i think someone put it pretty well it's the like the breeder not the breed um, and like, you could have a breeder who like lies and says, oh, they're fine. It's a docile like group, but like, they're really, we're just vicious, but they need to sell the puppies and get rid of them and stuff. There's that. And if you get a dog from a shelter clearly has some issues, that's why it's in a shelter or maybe yeah. usually I would say. So like, um, yeah. And like, we can get to the whole thing about pit bulls too. Like I've never met a pit bull. I didn't like, like one is for sure bitten my dog before at a dog park for like no reason but i don't get mad it's just what the like the breed does they like <laughs> do that but it's not like i don't think all pit bulls are like that like i'm not gonna generalize and do that but um it's just it I've gets a, i've been get attacked by them. two pit bulls so have you by a person okay yeah. I, ha- I have been attacked by them but i still like them actually but okay I, one time it was a pretty intense experience getting attacked by one i can tell that story later maybe but yeah, I'd love to hear it. I've I've never been, I guess I've been bit by a dog, but not like viciously. Um, so to to answer your question on the expelling myths and stuff, I would say like the whole it's the trainer, not the dog, is like that's just bullshit. Like it there's you you can't tell me you buy a border collie for like herding sheep the way it does, and you buy a lab because it's a family dog. Um, but like when a dog that is bred to do other things does, does that thing, you're like, Oh, it's the trainer. Like, Mm -hmm. I like that. It's a wolf. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's so complex. I mean, it's like, uh, I think it's really interesting with like, especially having a wolf dog. It's like, there's, it's just, there's so much misconception around them and it's so fraught and it is also higher stakes because like, she does have different kind of jaw pressure than a standard dog. Um, And like, she is really strong and like, um, like she can jump six foot fences if she wants to, like she's, she's a serious animal. 
Um, but it's also six feet. Like some people can, um, you know, like like her brother actually. So I'm friends with another person um, who who got her brother from the same litter, and she's like very been been super on it with socializing him, training him, and he was also kind of like the pick of the litter in terms of just being like the most like kind of docile one of the whole bunch. And she can like yeah. take him to the store with her, and he's like a total sweetheart, just like any you know good dog. It's like if I take our dog to Home Depot, she's going to freak out. You know, she'll see like the ceiling fans in there and like want to run, you know? Really? And it's like, you know, and it's like interesting because when she was a puppy, we did take her to places like that to socialize her and it went fine when she was a puppy. But now like she just has like very pronounced preferences. And at a certain point, it's like you learn, it's like you have to learn your animal, right? Like learn their quirks learn like what to avoid with them. And now it's like, at this point, it's easier for me to just not take her to Home Depot. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and like not subject her to the stress of that experience for her. Yeah. So, yeah. Like learn their shortcomings and like work around it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm trying to join. <clears throat> uh, sorry. I mean, I'm trying to join. Recording in progress. Oh, God. <laughs> I had to. I had to try to join by via a different, a different device. My, my computer nice. wasn't. Yeah, my computer just was not cooperating. I'm not even 100. I'm not. Uh, I'm honestly not 100 percent sure why. So you're here now. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it's I, got, I got the phone. Phone game. Cool. Yeah, we'll see if it works. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you you mentioned like having sort of toxic people in your, in your various uh, industries and, and, um, uh, you know, with us, it's the same, you know, I, uh, we have, it's kind of goes in the other direction with us because, you know, most of the, the push in the reptile community is to buy from breeders, specifically Mm -hmm. from breeders, because if you're not buying from a breeder, then usually what you're buying is a wild caught animal. You're buying an import. Mm -hmm. And, 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 you know, you, what you have is sort of a double-edged sword. Like on the one hand, all the animals come from the wild in the first place. Right. So, but there really is a, there are plenty of ethical reasons to suggest you really ought to, if you're just buying a pet, you really should just be going for a, a captive bred animal, you know, from somebody, it's just going to be the better way to go about it. The more sort of considerate way, uh, slightly more ethical in various ways. Um, but then we also have really, without like naming specific people in particular, you know, we've got a lot of people in the reptile community who um, basically take advantage of the animals that they're working with to capture sensational videos and sensational mm-hmm. viral stuff mm-hmm. and use that in an effort to build a following. It's not as if that's the only thing that they do. And it's not as if that they're not, you know, nobody's perfect and not everyone has the same perspective on all of this. But it's, a, it's fairly unpopular in a huge swath of the reptile community. This sort of, um, I mean, honestly, we should call it what it is, right? Like semi-abusive or like borderline abusive treatment of animals for the sake of clicks. Yeah. yeah. You know? At the very and, least, and, exploitative. Yeah, 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 for sure. And so that gets really complicated. And, um, you know, so it's it's there. And, <laughs> you know, you mentioned, then the other thing that you mentioned, the, you know, it's not the breed, it's the breeder, you know? Uh 
it's the same thing here. You know, I, I spent many years adopting our dogs that we had for our family from various shelters and various, you know, organizations. And, you know, sometimes it was no problem. Sometimes we'd get great dogs, you know, occasionally, but we also got a lot of problem animals, you know, and it was a lot, it was a burden you don't recognize you're taking on. And it doesn't mean that those animals don't deserve attention and don't deserve the good home, but God, it's difficult. You know, it, it's like, it's not that simple. It's like, you, you know, you have to know what you're getting into and you can't just, you can't know what you're getting into with a single visit in a neutral space where this dog's terrified out of its mind. You know, um, it, it, it's, uh, it's highly complicated. And we, you know, ever since we got our golden, we got our, our my, my family, uh, our golden and her brother, we got them, we got them from a breeder and now it's like every dog I want to get, I'm going to buy from a goddamn breeder. Like it's it, the, 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 the effort that that breeder went through to make sure that the animals were healthy, well-adjusted potty trained before we even got them. My dog, she's eight years old. She's had one accident in the house. One. Wow. It was, it was one pee. She just peed on the floor and it was just cause she'd I've never been here. Yeah, me yeah. too. I've, yeah, we've all done it, man. We've, <laughs> you know, whether it was the edibles or the beer, you know, you name it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. And, yeah. It, uh, not that I say it irks me. It's just like, I understand the push and like, I support it too. Like, I don't want an animal to rot in a shelter. And like, it is yeah. sad when they watch people come by and don't get picked because dogs thrive on interacting with humans. That's their thing. Um, but like these people that push and like, oh yeah, like I just got this rescued pit bull or like I got this rescued lab or this rescued German shepherd and stuff like that. Like they just get it. Cause especially like when I lived in Brooklyn, I saw a lot of it and it's like the, the hipster thing and like mm-hmm. get a uh, Denver, a lot of it too. I see too. Yeah. Like they don't know how to take care of a dog and like it bites yeah. people. And it's like, I'll watch them. I don't go to dog parks cause other people don't watch their dogs especially like in new york where they're huge but they're texting the whole time and like the dog is doing its own thing and my dog will like he's loud and he's big and he's very vocal and mouthy that's just how he is not to say he's biting the dogs but he'll growl and growl and then his hair will stick up and then he'll not bite them but he'll like snap and like then i get yelled at and i've had that's happened twice and i'm like your dog was harassing mine he wouldn't leave him alone yeah whereas my dog was like sniffing first and like went and did his thing and i was play and fetch with them and stuff so like yeah it, sure my dog could probably be a little more like friendly and roll over on its back i guess but i can't tell him to do that he's like a big dog <laughs> so like i mean i guess i could tell him to do that i train him but um <laughs> point point being like he just wants to hang out too and she could have pulled her dog away at any point and like been mm-hmm. like all right stop mike whatever you, mike i don't know that's the dog's name but <laughs> <laughs> yeah timmy timmy yeah timmy Shut up, Timmy. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so another thing I'm curious about, uh, David, and this might be maybe uh, based on the way my tech is working, uh, this might be like the, the right time to start uh, winding back the convo. I mean, I don't mean to be that guy. Uh, I'm actually very much enjoying this conversation. And yeah, uh, you're good. You're crystal clear right now. Kind of bums me out. But well, the thing is, I transferred to my phone <clears throat> and uh, my phone's battery is like 10% and I don't have a charger where I'm sitting here and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm going to go back to my computer because okay. my charger, my charger's out here in the living room. I'm like, God, dude, I'm so unprepared. 
I'm the world's worst Boy Scout. Um, but uh, <laughs> you an Eagle Scout, Phil? Come on. I, I, I was, in fact. <laughs> that was a long time ago, sir. Um, but uh, so I guess something I'm curious about is what are some of your goals with the work you're doing now? Like, what are your goals for the future? What are the things you're 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 wanting to do? Um, with what you're doing from here on out, like we have, if you, if you, if you have a clear vision of, of where you're headed or what you want to do. Um, I don't necessarily have a clear vision and it's funny. My parents, every time I come to visit for a few days, they're like, what's, what's the plan? Cause I quit my, I used to be a curator and I left cause this social media stuff blew up and I wanted more time yeah. on it. Um, and like, I make enough to get by. I would love to make way more like I was making. Um, sure. but like those, so what's your plan? I'm like, I, Hang on, I'll figure it out. Uh, This is all so new. But ideally, like I've been interviewed for shows. I've auditioned to do like an Animal Planet thing where they set up unspecified Animal Network, but like it's not HGTV. So um, like that stuff. And then COVID hit. I haven't gotten any more of those really. But then um, I did a pilot with a show. I don't necessarily want like a... um, like a, I don't want to host some like fancy flashy archaeology show because they always want me to do like the the clickbaity like conspiracy mm. stuff and I'm not trying to like ruin my reputation with that um, mm. and I just don't stand for it sometimes but um, sure. I want to like not like I'm trying to think of an episodic show the one I really liked was called Easy on Netflix um, and it's just like it sounds dumb but they're like little human stories of like you know someone cheated or like these brothers started the business together and the brother was like drunk all the time and like they had to deal with it um just mumblecore like human stories but i want to do that in like like it says like 10,000 BC Australia and then it's like uh-huh. 7,000 BC Alaska or like 2,000 BC Africa or Tanzania and it's like a story with like correct language, correct like props and tools, correct like setting and like what they're doing. And it's just like somebody's brother died and there's a funeral or somebody like just to show people that it's the same, like it has been forever. Um, I don't know how to write and produce a show. Um, I can film my own stuff for sure, but it's a lot of work and a lot of money. Uh, Mm. So something like that would be my goal because I could teach through that. and like just show don't tell i guess in that sense um yeah and but like also if i got someone offered me a bill nye type show to teach anthropology i would do it and hire some friends yeah until then man it's just post stuff that i like um i would love to do comedy all the time but like i gotta sit somewhere in a city and like do the open mic thing every just i don't have time (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah 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 well that's pretty cool that's interesting um Well, so then, so we have this uh, kind of recurring theme for the show, which is we ask, um, we ask people this same closing question. Wait, wait, uh, wait. And, oh, sorry. Wait, no, go ahead. No, Roy. Can I, can I, can I do a riff yeah. off this one? No. Instead? Well, I want to do two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Questions. Hell yeah. Okay. So, so. Yeah, as Phil was saying, and I just really cut him off. Um, no, do it. Please. We have this this riff of this closing question. We ask all of our guests, and typically our guests are people within herpetoculture. We ask why herpetoculture? Yeah. Um, like, like, why do we do this? Why does it matter? And I would love to hear your answer to that from just like totally outside perspective as someone who's not 
actively involved in herpetoculture, but also I want to ask you why archaeology? Mm. Yeah. Um, like for you personally, but also <laughs> for for us, the capital, you, us. So you want me to answer why herpetoculture first? Either one, whichever one you want to go with first. I need a second to think. I think I probably should have thought of that before I did the episode, you guys. <laughs> um, we, we should have. We should have sent you that. I guess for when the reptile people take over, we know I kind of talk to them better. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I think reptiles are fascinating. Um, I watch, I don't know if you guys follow Gator Boy Chris is his name. I don't know if he's like a yeah. Tiger King situation, but he seems like a chill dude. Always messages me. Um, but yeah, he's like feeding the alligators and like chicken and they he shows you how they interact. And it, it's just, I never knew that. I didn't realize alligators could like, and I guess he's clicker training them. I should have known that, but um, they're like food training them. They're extremely uh, smart. Yeah, like I, I didn't know that. And he was showing like their like scent or their hearing like ear thing. It's like little flaps that open up. Didn't know that. Uh, the fact that they are kind of unchanged, kind of like sharks for so long. Um, yeah that's cool like they've won the darwinian race in that sense like they're a perfect form um and i mean i guess they just they're cool to study in that sense that's just alligators but also crocodiles in africa like whenever i watch those nature is metal things like there's yeah. lions there's tigers there's like wildebeest there's the african wild dogs and stuff and then like there's always a crocodile right there that you, and like the way they just it's so cool like reptiles mm -hmm. are fascinating to me and then yeah I, as you said ectotherms is that the, the correct yeah. word that is so cool to me too like i feel like we could study that more and like I'd apply it to other things i don't know that's a mm -hmm. i guess my answer, answer would be they're fascinating <laughs> yeah yeah it's a good answer that's a good answer yeah appreciate it you want to hear a cool factoid about about how smart crocodilians are real quick yeah i think you'd appreciate this um so crocodilians in bird nesting season uh notice that like herons and you know aquatic like riparian birds will come and they're they're collecting twigs to build to build their nests and they'll actually crocodilians will go and they'll collect twigs and they'll put them on their heads and then set up an ambush to wait for this these birds to come to collect twigs for their nests Whoa. so That's they can snap cool, them up yeah yeah that's Julius. So, that's cool yeah straight they're, up they're, they're setting traps they're setting traps it's a trap <laughs> Raptors. admiral akbar <laughs> yeah. yeah dude uh, anyway I, I the first time i heard that i was like this shit's real <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh, that's cool man um for archaeology or anthropology in general like there's a lot of shit in the world um like there's always been shit wrong like the romans were like oh like these people we gotta go conquer them and like you know the chinese were conquering other chinese like back in the day like there's always like problems with society but like i think studying anthropology really helps you understand more about other people and my professor robert kelly put this uh it's also named robert kelly uh and a, a cool way was like i guess there's two answers you could be if you have Somali neighbors that move next door and they're Muslim, there's two kinds of people. You can be curious, or yeah, sorry, you could be 
xenophobic about that. And like, I don't want them here. Like, I don't like this. Get them out of here. Or you can be curious. You can invite them over for dinner and ask them about their life. Um, and like, that's what an anthropologist does. Um, and like, I like to view the world that way. Like, I just like, why is that that way? Like, I wonder what it's like to live as a homeless person in Denver for a few days. You're probably high a lot. Um, but like, <laughs> um, but like, just, yeah. Like, what is it like to grow up as a tribesman in Africa when there's like cell phones and planes flying above you and stuff? And, um, or like somebody who's schizophrenic, like what, like, how do they view the world? Cause there's a lot of like evolutionary, like they think maybe shamanism was schizophrenia back in the day. And it's like an evolutionary purpose. Yeah. Um, like things like that. I don't know, just I can go on and on, but just le- understanding other cultures and for archaeology, learning about people in the past, um, like just how they lived and like just based on the stone tools they had. I wonder, like, so we just have stone tools. What was their language? Was it click based? Was it, did it sound like French? Was it tonal like Chinese? Mm. Um, what clothes did they wear? Did they like, what were their dances? Like things like that. I, like you can't answer without a time machine, but like archaeology brings you closer to that. And like in case the apocalypse or like the last of us starts tomorrow, the only way to like fully survive correctly is to understand like how indigenous peoples lived where they did. Um, mm-hmm. Because they clearly lived in North America for over 15,000 years, just fine using the landscape. And like you could do it yeah. too. Um, without degrading it. Yeah. They did burn the planes a lot to make stuff, but it made it better in some ways. But um, yeah, and like without, yeah, like without, yeah, without polluting and all that kind of stuff. But, um, and I I guess to answer the dog thing, they're just an artifact of our ice age past. And you said it pretty well, Roy. It's like they're a fundamental part of being human. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Man, I love that. I love that. Just, just that, um, how much the world would be a better place if we regarded what we don't know with curiosity rather than fear. Yeah. You know, I think that that's like, that's kind of it, honestly. I mean, for all forms of prejudice, you know, or, um, I think that even, that even applies to reptiles. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Like, like, can I ask you guys like yeah. why herpetology? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Roy, you want to go first? You, you go first. Oh shit! Um, well, I can go if you want, but no, no, I want to go. It's just it's fine. <laughs> I, I just uh, feel like I always, I'm always the one who. Anyway, no, no, it's okay. It's good. It's good. Um, uh, for me, I think it it was pretty well summed up by the guy we referenced earlier, Philippe de Vosgely, um, by saying that the herpetoculture is a way of gaining recognition of another kind of consciousness. It's a way for me to connect with the world around me in a way that is not available in the same way that it used to be. It fulfills something in me that is extremely difficult to elaborate on and articulate. Yeah. But there's something there and I don't know if it's, a fluke or uh as one of our previous guests put it a disease 
or you know what? I don't know, but it's something and it it's there and it is absolutely undeniable because this has been with me since before I have any memory of my own consciousness. I've always tried to do this. I've always tried to interact with reptiles and amphibians. I've always wanted to bring them inside. I've always everything. And I don't know where that comes from and I don't know why it is, but it brings me an unbelievable amount of fulfillment and joy. So yeah. That's a cool answer, man. <laughs> yeah. Respect. Glad you like it. <clears throat> yeah, pretty much what he said. I mean, it's <laughs> it's um it, it just meets something in me that nothing else has in my life. Um, it's just deeply gratifying on this level. And um, it's so interdisciplinary. I think that like learning about herpetoculture has introduced me to so many other things that I'm interested in, like botany and geography sure. and geology and um, chemistry. Other, like other, yeah, chemistry, other, other cultures, um, all of that. It's, it, it's, it's a, it's been a gateway to um, like just a very like generalized, like, you know, like as EO Wilson would put it, like a biophilia, you know, love for yeah. love for the world, love for the natural world. Um, you know, I feel like, you know, as a as a kid growing up in a kind of rough and tumble environment in an inner city um context, I the first thing that brought me outside was to go look for lizards and snakes. And then then, you know, I fell in love with like oak trees and wildflowers and all these other things that have you know, deeply enriched my life. And, um, yeah, so it touches on all of these things that are meaningful and, and, um, challenging to me. And I think that there's just something really, um, valuable about stretching to meet another kind of consciousness. Yeah. Another kind of being, you know, and trying to, um, develop a greater capacity for empathy for something so different is rewarding. And I also, I appreciate that you asked us because uh, I don't think we've ever had anybody turn the question on us before. No one's yeah. ever asked, asked us, like, why do you guys think herpeticulture? It's always been what we ask other people. So it was actually mm -hmm. kind of nice to be able to ask, answer that, or uh, at least for me anyway. That was nice. Thanks, yeah, thanks. thanks for that. Yeah, man. Yeah. I'm curious about my reptophile neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> right. There you, there you go, dude. We're, we're not from Somalia. Well, some of them are, <laughs> the reptiles are from Somalia. <laughs> well, cool, guys. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have thought about the other forms of consciousness thing. That I have to think about that. That's cool. Yeah. Thanks. That's cool to hear, man. Well, th uh, thank you again for uh, taking some time to chat with us and share the... Um, yeah interesting area of expertise that you've cultivated over the over the last you know x number of years it's been a really interesting conversation yeah man yeah uh, anytime this was really fun yeah Hell yeah. yeah love yeah, to have you back sometime yeah we'd love to do that if you're up for it cool i'm mm -hmm. in denver a lot so if you guys want to do one in person or something oh yeah dude, dude. That'd be yeah, great. I'll fly out for that. <laughs> oh, you're not in Denver too? Okay. No, to, I'm in, no, Roy has to be here. He's got, he's got a, I'm in California. You know, Roy okay. and I have become almost like, we've become very, very close friends over the last few years. And, uh, well, I guess a couple of years. And we've never met in person. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Isn't that weird? That's pretty wild. 
I thought maybe you guys were sharing the warehouse you're in right now of, of reptiles or something. <laughs> no, I wish. Nope. Cool. I, I have it's cool how that works, record. man. I have way more reptiles than Roy. Way more. Like, it's not even close. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'd love to come see him at some point. Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah anytime you're here, I'll give you a tour. Hell yeah. And the same awesome. for Northern California, if you're ever in uh, in this area. I also have some archaeological mysteries on my land that I would love to talk to you about. Where are you at specifically? If you don't mind me asking. I'm in Lake County. So um, okay. I'm about like, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Santa Rosa, Napa County, Sonoma County, just mm-hmm. north of San Francisco. Okay. I've been to Stockton and Lodi and all, all over there in Sacramento. Okay. But yeah. Yeah. That's not far from me at all. That's like okay. two hours. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, where can people find you in terms of your socials? I mean, we'll link to it and everything, but for those listening yeah. verbally. If you just type in David Ian Howe, um, people think it's Davidian Howe, but I was born just before the Branch Davidian thing. So the, okay, that's, yeah. that's a good I never name. put that together. But, oh, man, that's amazing. Yeah, it's kind of a cool name. It's just sullied now because of, you know, a violent <laughs> cult. But um, yeah, it's um, yeah, David Ian Howe. You can find me on YouTube. Uh, Instagram. Well, my Instagram is ethnosynology, but it's my name's on there. He'll he'll find it if you type it in. And then um, I'm pretty TikTok's my biggest platform. I just post Instagram stuff on there, but um, you'll get the same thing on Instagram. Is what I'm saying. And uh, yeah, that's about it for now. Thanks, man. 